Well, it's an interesting day, isn't it? And uh, nothing about this day is what we expected it to be just two days ago, just midday yesterday even. But it does make one point quite well, I think. And that is, uh, well, it's, it's actually in the Bible. Man makes his plans, right? But the Lord directs his steps. And it reminds us maybe not to be so smug about everything we're so sure about. Because things can change very quickly. And it's a reminder to us that, that our, our wits and our cleverness and our systems and our process, that's all good. But none of it is enough. If we've based all of our hope on that, then situations like this are going to arise and, and it's going to destroy our sense of well-being, our peace in our heart. And I appreciate the focus in the songs because we want to focus ourselves today very clearly on the only safe place for you to put your hope, your focus. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we have sung about Jesus extensively. Now as we read your word, may we reflect specifically on him. Because only in him is our hope. Only in him is our solid ground. So be with us as we read your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to talk to you today primarily from the book of Hebrews, and specifically about four times from the book of Hebrews where a certain phrase is stated. And that phrase is, he sat down at the right hand of, and then it'll either be God or the throne of glory or something like that. But this phrase he sat down at the right hand. And I want to use that as, as the basis upon which we work our way through this and the reason why we have confidence. So we'll start out in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now, you might get a slight difference between my translation here and this one. I have an older New International Version, so if they vary, that's what's going on there. But it's essentially the same. Okay, I just read you a rather remarkable list. But if you're not attuned to hear it, it could really blow by you really fast. So I want to go back and, and, let, and just list for you... All of the things that this short little beginning to this book of Hebrews says about Jesus. First of all, it says he is heir of all things. 
Well, just think about that for a minute. That's kind of a lot, right? Everything. What belongs to Jesus? Everything. He is heir of all things. But why? Well, the, the next claim that this passage makes is that Jesus was by the means by which the universe was created. He wasn't just hanging around at the creation. He was the means by which God created, is what this passage tells us. It goes on. It says, he is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And he is the exact representation of God's being. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just what has been. It's also what is. He is the sustainer of all things by his word. It's not our cleverness. It's not our systems. It's not our institutions. Those things have a role in our lives. But the true sustainer of all things is Jesus. Well, what are some of the things he has done? Well, one of the big ones is this. And this passage tells us he is the provider of purification from sin. There's a lot of claims just in four verses. He is the provider of purification from sin. He is superior to all the angels. Anybody ever seen an angel? I have not. I, I want to say sadly I have not, but based on how people respond when they see one, I'm not sure if that's right, because what happens when someone sees an angel? You, you remember this in every story? They fall on the ground as though they're dead. That's what it's like to see an angel. Jesus is superior to all of the angels. And then it uses this other line. He is sitting at the right hand of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, this was a phrase that, that was very important in another time, and it was really more relevant in a day, unlike our day, uh, where governments were primarily a monarch or some sort of a major ruler. And it, it was very symbolic. If you were at the right hand of the ruler, that meant that you were the most important person in the court. So when the scripture says, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, what it means is that he was seated, he was invested, he was approved, and he was given the authority to accomplish whatever the divine ruler said needed to be done. So in the case of Jesus, this means his job is to accomplish God's will. He's seated at the right hand. There's another place where this is symbolized, and it's, it's very powerful. And I want to take you over to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. Because we will see symbolically here described this very reality that is, that is described in Hebrews. And I start in, in verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven 
or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. So there is a problem in heaven described in this, in this chapter of Revelation. There is a scroll that is the will of God in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne, but there is no one worthy to open it. In other words, to accomplish God's will. So verse 4, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I looked, uh, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Now, earlier we were singing the lion and the lamb, right? Remember that? We sang that song. Every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Well, here you see that, that juxtaposition right here in this text talking about Jesus. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, but he looked and I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came, now notice what he does. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. All right, we're going to come back to this in a minute, but I want you to understand this scene, what is happening here. There is no one from the mightiest angel to the lowest reality under the earth, whatever that means, who is worthy to take the scroll and open it, except for one, and that one is Jesus. And he comes and he takes the scroll. What that means is that Jesus has accepted from the right hand of God, God's purpose. And he is going to accomplish God's purpose in the world. And, and it is an ongoing purpose, because as the book unfolds, you'll see he opens a seal and things happen. He opens another seal and things happen. But I want to take you to another place where this same idea is captured. And this is, this is in the Old Testament. This is from the Psalms, from Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1. And this describes God's heart towards Jesus, towards the one who's taking the scroll. It says this, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Where did Jesus sit down? At the right hand of the Father. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Jesus now has said, I'm God, I'm going to accomplish your purpose. And God says, sit right here and do it until the enemies are your footstool. Until everything set against the purpose of the kingdom of God has become subject to Jesus. Well, how does God achieve this? I'm going to take you back to Hebrews. This time, let's go over to chapter 7. I want to bring you to another statement in Hebrews where it says, and he sat down at the right hand of God. But we've got to build up to it. So I have to start in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. And we read this. It says, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people, 
Why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek. Maybe I should just read it off the screen. That would be clear, wouldn't it? Why was there need for another one to come? Well, there's a lot to explain here, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. And fascinating, this character Melchizedek and how he plays into the story. He shows up in the story of Abraham. And it's an amazing thing how he comes in there. But the point that's being made here that we need to understand for what we want to do is that what he's saying here is that this Levitical priesthood with the, with the sacrifice of a sheep or a, or a goat or, or something else was never enough to take away sin. If it had been enough, then there would have been no need for another one to come. But it wasn't enough. So I want to jump down to verse 17. So Hebrews chapter 7, verse 17 says, For it is declared... You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, let me just give you an insight into that on verse 17. You see, that's a quote. That's actually a quote from Psalm 110. Remember we read the first verse of Psalm 110 just a minute ago, talking about Jesus? This is from that same psalm. That whole psalm is talking about what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he would do. So let's go on. Verse 18. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Verse 20, and it was not without an oath, others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So that's Psalm 110 again, quoting Psalm 110. So what's it saying? What it's saying is there's been this Levitical priesthood that was illustrating forgiveness, but there was nothing about the Levites, there was nothing about those priests that was enough to take away sin. Therefore, it was essential that another one come, another priest who would become a priest by oath, not by birth. Let's go on, verse 22. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law, now this cuts it off there, the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. 
All right, so, so let's go back and, and, and talk about what we just read there. All right, what we just read in those words is that we needed a priest who himself was perfect and who would never die in order to continually make intercession for us at the right hand of God. So that's what that's telling us. That's what it's describing. That whole process that the Levites were doing, it was instructional, but it was not effective. Because it didn't actually change the reality. We needed something more. And then this brings us then to chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, Now the main point of what we are saying is this. So here's the point. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. There it is again. Do you see? We have a priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human beings. So what I want you to see in this and understand in this is this Jesus that we talk about, this Jesus that we sing about, this Jesus that we call Savior, do we understand fully who he really is? Are we truly worshiping this Lord with a full understanding of what he's done? That he sits at the right hand of God, that nothing could go forward without him, that everything exists because of him, that salvation is because of him, and that everything will come is because of him. And he sits at the right hand of God. There's another spot. This time we go over to chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Okay, I think, I think we would agree on that, right? But see, that's because we're from a later time. Building up to that time, if you'd been a Hebrew and you had been offering sacrifices for sin all your life, you might be tempted to think that somehow this was actually doing it. But, but no, the author of Hebrews here is saying, I want you to understand this. The blood of bulls and goats do not take away sin. But then verse 5, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, now this is really neat, because again, now it's a quote from the Psalms. This is Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, my God. Now, then he breaks it down. He says, all right, I want you to understand this. First, he says, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first, the sacrifices of bulls and goats, to establish the second. 
And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You wonder how it worked? Once for all, Jesus laid down his life. And that sacrifice, by that sacrifice, was enough to forgive the sins of us all. But here's the other thing you need to understand. Nothing else can do it. You know that song, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's the only thing. It's the only thing that can. And isn't that powerful that the prophecy would come from the Psalms that would be about Jesus, where we would say, you know, with sacrifices, you didn't desire that. Therefore, you gave me a body. Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. The one who appears at the throne takes the scroll. He's come to do the will of God. Verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, where did he sit? He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits, here's Psalm 110 again, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Isn't that interesting language? He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So, so based on this, based on faith in Jesus, you are accepted in Jesus as perfect forever, even though the process of your being made holy continues. That's a powerful word, isn't it? I think I would have to call this good news. See, the good news is, even despite our weakness, even despite our failing, there's one who sits at the right hand of God who has committed himself to accomplish God's purpose. And God's purpose is to redeem from the world all of his children that have gone astray. And Jesus has done everything it takes to accomplish that purpose. And it is because of his work and because of his call that you're here today or that you're watching today because the Spirit of God has come, spoken to your heart, called to your heart and said, look, God wants to make you perfect even while you're becoming holy. Put your faith in him. Put your trust in him. Put your confidence in him. In him. Now, I want to go back to Revelation here because now that we've walked through these passages, now you begin to see what was happening at the throne when this lion of Judah, who looked like a lamb that was slain, approaches the throne of God and takes from the right hand of God this scroll that is the future of our deliverance, that is our only hope. John wept and wept because no one could save us until Jesus arrives, having accomplished God's purpose, takes the scroll, 
and begins to open those seals. Now I want you to see what happens the moment he does this. We'll start in verse 6 again of Revelation chapter 5. And we're going to read through the end of the chapter. It says, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, what did they do? They fell down before the lamb. They began to worship. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls of full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Now, here's the you know why this is a new song? Because until that moment, after Jesus accomplishes our salvation with his life, death, and resurrection, and returns to the Father and takes the scroll, until that moment, this song could not be sung because there was none worthy to save us. Until that moment, we were hopelessly lost. But in that moment, the only one worthy came to the Father, took the scroll, and immediately every Every one of these beings in heaven that understood what had just taken place fell down and sang this song they've been longing to sing. That now there is one who has redeemed us. And not just one or two, but people from every kingdom and nation and tongue and people. All are brought in in this sacrifice. We go on, verse 11. Now this praise begins to swell. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor, and glory, and praise. Now just stop for a second and imagine that scene. You, you started with the 24 elders and these strange creatures bowing down and worshiping Jesus. But now, all of a sudden, thousands upon thousands of angels have joined this chorus. And they're singing praises to the Lord Jesus. What do you think that sounded like? But it's still not done. Because Jesus is worthy of even more praise than this. Verse 13. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power Forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, just like you did. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So I want to ask you something. 
Have you ever worshiped like that? What is, what is in your heart when you worship? It's going to be a little confusing for us sometimes because often this idea of worship, we get it, we get it wrapped up in the context of that was an experience I liked versus that was an experience I didn't like. Okay, well, there's, there's truth in that. There's validity in that. There's expressions. There's context. But here's the great danger of worship. It's very easy for it to become about me, not about the one who sits at the right hand of God. Now, what the one who sits at the right hand of God did was for me. That's absolutely true. And I should feel something powerful in me as a result of what he did for me. But the worship is not me. The worship is to the one who sits at the right hand of the throne. That's what worship is about. It's not about what I feel. But it's about the one I praise. And yes, there should be intense emotion. But it should never be self-centered. We've been singing about Jesus the whole way here. Songs of praise for what He's done, for who He is. But now that we're reminded that He is the one at the right hand of God, He is the only one who could take the scroll. He is the only one worthy. We get another chance today to worship. Let's magnify the name of Jesus.
time of giving, and I have strong belief, strong faith that our ministries here at Forest Lake Church are going to keep on happening despite whatever else goes on in the world. But with that, it takes sacrifice and our giving to make those things happen. In Philippians 1.6, it says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So I invite you now, online giving is open. You can go on the Tithely app, Adventist Giving, to help further the ministries here at Forest Lake Church. Yeah. 
says it, doesn't it? Did you find that place of praise in your heart? If you were counting, I told you I was going to read you four places where the scripture in Hebrews says that Jesus sat down at the right hand, but I only read you three. There's one more, and I want to read it to you now because this is what you go out with. The ones I read you before were about what it's like to be in here. The reason we come and worship in a setting like this is because of this amazing thing that that Jesus has accomplished. And we praise his name. But then we go out, right? And right now we go out into a pretty confused world that doesn't know what to be afraid of. Well, here's how we go out. And this is Hebrews chapter 12. We begin in verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 to 3. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. I want you to think about all those ones around the throne praising God as witnesses. Because we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. You know what this is in your life? Reflect on this right now. As we read this, what's entangling you? What's slowing you? What's keeping you from magnifying Christ in your life? That's that's the sins that entangle. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. All right, going to pause right there again. Run with perseverance. There's a couple implications here. One, it is a marathon. You don't run the hundred yards with perseverance. Perseverance means it's a long run. So keep running with perseverance because there is a race marked out for you. Your race is different than mine. Your race is different than mine. I can only run mine. You need to run yours. And God's will is only done in its fullness when every one of us runs our race. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, doing what? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And then what did he do? I told you I was going to read it four times. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Don't give in. This is the race. Run it with perseverance, with your eyes on Jesus. And the blessing of the Lord will be with you.
be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you.
Father, we lift our eyes and fix them upon the one at your right hand, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, who was victorious in every way that we fail, and who stands to ever intercede on our behalf. He is for us, and he has promised to be with us. Today our faith grows. Today our confidence is increased, even as others' hearts fail them in fear. Yet by your Spirit, our hearts gain strength to meet the challenge of this day. So we go forth with faith and hope and joy. For you are with us, you are for us, your face shines upon us. We thank you in Jesus' name.